Okay, so Donna saying that we should go ahead and get started. So thank you all for coming in person. It's good to see you. Um, Amanda is going to introduce our speaker, so if you'd like to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Jonathan Allen is a professor in the Department of Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Science here at NCSU and the director of the Food Science Graduate Program. He teaches courses in milk and dairy products, lactation, exercise nutrition, and energy metabolism. His research projects focus on how food processing uh, impacts glycemic control and bioactive compounds in foods such as sweet potato, peanuts, and milk. Dr. Allen is inter internationally known for his work understanding the and potential amelioration of chronic diseases such as infant growth retardation, metabolic bone disease, diabetes, and hypertension. Rebecca Brown is a cohort three Ag BioFuse fellow and PhD candidate in the Food, Bioprocessing, and Nutrition Science Department at NCSU. Some of her research involves stakeholder engagement regarding the use or acceptance of biotech in sweet potatoes and sweet potato products, as well as the health and sustainability of different processing techniques. The future Dr. Brown is a passionate scientist who is always broadening our team's food science knowledge. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Uh, I'm here because uh, last time we had lunch in this room, I was talking with Fred about things I do and have done, um, and somehow got, uh, worked into an invitation from Don with this title, Food Sciences, Technology, and Globally Sustainable Food Systems. And what I do is basically what our department is, food science a little bit, bioprocessing or food processing and nutrition. So most of my teaching is in nutrition. So I kind of uh, picked out a few of our uh, research areas over the last several decades that I've been working here um, as examples of what is food science and how does it uh, relate to sustainable food systems. So sustainable sustainability is is a buzzword in food science. Um, many of the organizations involved with that are, are trying to in, uh, increase their visibility in that field. So I try to rely on the think globally, act locally um, mantra for that. Um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about what our uh, parent organizations are doing in the sustainability area. I've uh, been a longtime member of the Institute of Food Technologists, which is uh, uh, um, probably the largest um, membership organization for food science. It's around 20,000 members from science, industry, and government. Um, also in the American Society for Nutrition, which has a new uh, subdivision research interest group in uh, sustainability. Uh, I've uh, participated in what our college is doing, trying to um, figure out what should we be teaching in terms of sustainability, um, looking at uh, climate change and what's what are the general information for uh, undergraduate and graduate students coming out of the College of Agriculture and Life Science in that area. And, I uh, don't really have anything more prepared for that. That Delphi study is uh, um, being conducted by Joe Donaldson in the uh, Department of Agricultural and Human Sciences with uh, people of an interest in 
uh, sustainability and climate um, around the college. And then I'll, um, depending on how much time I have, talk about some of my uh, labs research over the years that sort of fits into this category. Uh, Don mentioned um, uploading uh, any files where you might uh, have your picture. And I happen to go to this IFT uh, um, website about IFT and found out, oh yeah, we actually had our snapshot taken here. Uh, we're looking at my department head piece and we were having a conversation at the IFT meeting, I think in 2019, just before the pandemic in New Orleans. And uh, so this is my best global picture. <laughs> I was looking for your picture. <laughs> so the IFT coming up for this summer um, is kind of drawing in, uh, drawing its attention into this area. Um, their theme that they've developed for this year is uh, innovation in a time of crisis. Can we future-proof the food system? So last year was their first face-to-face uh, -face meeting, which was also an online hybrid meeting. This year, they're going face-to-face -face only after uh, the uh, last real meeting in 2019. Um, so there's a whole list of things that they uh, put out for people to, in their call for proposals for session talks and, uh, and abstracts and, and student poster, poster presentations on future-proofing the food system. They follow that up with a bunch of questions on sustainability and climate. How are rethinking supply chains in the face of increased global tensions? What advancements in packaging are leading to reduction in plastic waste? Big um, sustainability quasi-issue. Um, operationalizing sustainability so that um, actually we're seeing um, a lot of companies now have a sustainability officer at uh, some place in the higher management in the food industry. And um, not everybody's really clear what those people are, even if they are. Um, what processing technologies are leading to more sustainable and resilient uh, food and beverage production and creative solutions? And then some similar questions in uh, the health and nutrition aspect of this meeting. What are the processing technologies that lead to improved nutrition? And so uh, I've been, uh, I'm a reviewer for abstracts in the uh, graduate student and scientist uh, poster uh, competition and, and for um, proposals in their scientific floor sessions. And I just got the abstracts to review um, under dairy products and sustainability. So I think I had 13 different abstracts in, in the sustainability. Uh, division. Um, so all, all of the students presenting sort of categorize where their where their paper should be directed in terms of the, their poster sessions. And so I went through these and tried to sort of, sort of figure out what what is it that scientists and graduate students in food science are proposing as under this umbrella of food systems sustainability. And I found um, uh, five papers here that we categorize as the area of upcycling. So that's a new buzz, buzzword that I try to keep in my 
brain, I, I kind of forget what happens after the up part. Is it up benefiting or whatever? So upcycling is is uh, the new word, and uh, this one one paper actually uses that term, upcycling sesame brand. Um, and so you know, basically taking a product that's not used or might be a waste product from from some commodity that creates a high value food. And then these waste products go to animal feeds or they go to a landfill or they get plowed into agricultural lands for fertilizer. Um, so the questions in many of these top papers are how do we uh, use those uh, byproducts to extract some um, something that's valuable um, and is, is uh, reducing the waste component and the um, greenhouse gas emission as it as it gets uh, degraded in landfill. So it's kind of steps before it's ultimately degraded because we know that everything that we're growing uh, is is going to recycle into CO two and then back into plants. Um, another uh, uh, um, category of uh, sustainability is reducing food waste. So uh, the IFT magazine, Food Technology, has done some uh, a couple of recent articles on this, uh, something like 40% of consumer um, products that we take home from the grocery store get thrown away without anybody eating them. Um, so the industry is saying, what can, how do we adjust consumer behavior so there's less food waste either at the consumer level, at the grocery store level, or in the processing level. And um, so this is actually, this top one is a, um, a company that produces, um, sells calcium propionate, which is an anti-molding agent, goes into bakery products. And so they did this um, sort of quick and dirty study to see how long, how much extension of the shelf life of bread uh, if it's contaminated with um, um, penicillin type yeast, um, three different strains of yeast I think they put on there to see how, how much longer your bread would uh, be kept in your counter before it's moldy and you throw it away. Um, so it, we'll come back to their company that can sell more, sell more of this anti, this food ingredient to preserve uh, uh, this bakery product. Um, another, uh, probably a student organization uh, did this second study on uh, development of shelf life prediction model for, for shelf spinach. Uh, if the consumer knows how long the, the spinach is going to last, they can figure out how much they want to buy before it's going to go bad in the refrigerator. Um, so some uh, fairly simple uh, studies there, but the technology for figuring out, figuring out when things go bad is fairly sophisticated. So there are um, antioxidant measurements in the in the product as as the degradation goes on, and you get to actually see what's uh, how much nutrient you're losing as uh, as foods are um, are being used in extended shelf life. And a couple of other papers uh, were either improving energy efficiency or developing a cleaner process. Um, and uh, this new ultrasound method uh, is for isolation of plant proteins. Um, so 
a different way of uh, of of uh, drying uh, particular proteins that might save energy. And a couple of uh, the papers that I looked at here are utilizing uh, supercritical sewage uh, carbon dioxide um, extraction for getting things like polyphenols and water-soluble compounds out of plant extracts. Um, and I think those come into, we're excited, we're submitted in under sustainability because uh, even though we don't really know what happens to all that CO2 when you do uh, supercritical extraction, um, it's not hexane. So we know the, the traditional organic solvents that people have used for some of these extractions um, have uh, environmental costs and, and you just don't get rid of these organic solvents. Last category here under utilized crop materials, uh, finding ways to um, take uh, roots such as taro and create some sort of a gum or a, or a polysaccharide that goes in as a food additive, maybe um, in place of some other uh, higher cost or higher value uh, food ingredients. So um, potentially these are sustainable, sustainable but um, you know, I think the long-term outcome is not really well documented. And this last one on water conservation was probably the only paper I saw that I thought really addressed the big, the big issue questions. And so they uh, poured through the literature to find um, all the different types of food categories that they could find and what is the water utilization. I think their outcome was that, yes, we use um, a lot of water in a dairy and uh, meat production, basically because there's a lot of uh, bacterial um, pathogen possibilities that we have to uh, watch out for. So everything that goes through our dairy plant and shop, we we make uh, we pasteurize fresh milk twice a week. But then that whole system uh, has a clean in places, clean in place um, uh, sanitation system. So a lot of water goes through there after after a run and make, and packaging milk. Same thing out at the dairy farm every day, uh, twice a day when they're milking the cows. Uh, all of that tubing um, uses steam and hot water and various uh, sanitation chemicals to um, manage the, the packaging. Uh, their main conclusion there, I think, was that um, it, they, they did a comparison of plant of, of uh, protein foods. And as you might expect, they found that plant proteins use less water than, than animal proteins, but their uh, highest water consumption consumption was looking at uh, cellular uh, proteins, uh, cell, cell grown meats that, that are on the way. Uh, so people were thinking about that as a, as a great alternative to animal industry. But though, um, if you're not looking at the water consumption, you're ignoring a cr critical part of uh, food system sustainability. So my characterization, we only addressed these three issues, what are the processing technologies leading to sustainable food and beverage production? What might be some creative solutions for addressing this food waste area? Uh, what processing might lead to improved nutrition? So we have food safety as a big component of food science. Um, we heat foods to kill bacteria, but that, that same heating issue destroys nutrients. So we have this trade-off that we're always uh, working against. Uh, trying to do a rapid, rapid heating at higher temperature to kill bacteria, 
as opposed to longer term um, slow lower temperature heating that uh, will uh, have a greater effect on nutrition. So why don't we address more of these uh, particular questions? And question I can answer I came up with is well nobody's really provided any research funding for that, and we've never created a um, category within our faculty hiring for people to create that science that addresses these sustainability issues. So we're trying to solve that problem. Um, we had an open faculty position uh, a few years ago and by consensus of the faculty decided that we would hire somebody in the area of food system sustainability. The search committee tried to figure out what that means so that we can put that into a job ad advertisement. And they came up with these uh, um, five, five types of research that people might be doing where we could find somebody who's related to the ongoing issues and can be collaborative in our department. Um, so, so sustainability in the food industry might be defined here as recycling, repurposing, recovery and re commercialization of value-added components. So much of like that upcycling we talked about and that people are already doing. Um, Food-related wastewater quality, wastewater reuse. Um, I think one of our, uh, one of the extension faculty who was in place uh, when I first came to NC State was Roy Carawan and his, his issue was going out into the food industry and, and helping them recover proteins that go into wastewater and reducing their water utilization. So done, dealt with that for a long time. Um, food packaging and biosensors, how do we know when something's spoiled uh, and when it's safe and when you should continue to utilize it. Food processing solutions to minimize, minimize waste and energy and use of machine learning or artificial intelligence to maximize food efficiency. So we have just completed that hire. I've seen a very similar ad recently from Virginia Tech and maybe one at um, uh, Wisconsin. So other, other food science departments are sort of getting into this field as well. We ended up interviewing somebody who did um, edible food packaging. Um, so films that go onto the food, keep the bacteria off and potentially have uh, embedded uh, antimicrobial peptides and things like that. We interviewed another person who worked in legumes. So uh, plant protein substituting for an animal proteins and he was recycling the uh, water used in that packaging. And we ended up uh, hiring um, Minling Yang uh, who is um, who's involved in uh, life cycle analysis and computer modeling, and most of her work previously was in biofuels. So we have this uh, uh, agricultural issue of how much of our grain production should go into biofuels compared to its utilization in the food in industry. So she's will be switching her emphasis back from biofuels into the food side. So the other organization, as a nutritionist, uh, we get a lot better nutrition science in the uh, American Society for Nutrition. And about five years ago, they also uh, developed this research interest section 
uh, called Climate, Environmental, Health, Agriculture, and, and Improved Nutrition with this cute little uh, acronym on the chain. Um, and they kicked this off with a day-long symposium that brought in lots of uh, different scientists that uh, work in all of these different issues, agriculture, environmental studies, food science, socioeconomics, and, uh, and nutritional um, and metabolism. Um, one of the uh, most interesting things I came away from that initial meeting was uh, some work that looked at uh, CO2 levels in plant growth, um, accelerating carbohydrate production. So plants actually grow better as we elevate atmospheric CO2 because that goes into making glucose, but they make glucose uh, faster than they take up nutrients. So you're going to end up with uh, spinach and cabbage that doesn't have the same level of vitamins and minerals that we have in our USDA databases for, for food intake. So um, once we were ever able to stabilize our atmospheric CO2 and have a whole new uh, breed of, of crops, we're going to have to go back through our nutrient analysis and reformulate uh, what's, what nutrients are in various types of foods. So as uh, way over time. So I'm going to uh, skip um, over my own research. I've um, worked with a number of international students, particularly from Malawi as director of graduate programs uh, in the dairy industry. Um, their industry is sort of a smallholder farm operation and we've compared that with our farm. So this was a project that a, class, that a bunch of students in my um, energy metabolism course put together modeling the energy flow through our Lake Wheeler dairy farm, um, looking at the energy inputs um, and energy outputs. And we've come up with a total input of um, 1300 megacalories per day into cows and output of uh, 30 on the energy side. Um, uh, big, big, uh, biggest part is uh, feed in, uh, feed into the cows, which I've uh, lost. Here we are. 19,000 uh, megacalories in feed and 3,300 megacalories per day coming out as milk. So we actually recover about 12 to 15 percent of the energy in the farm system um, as energy in milk. And I think in Rebecca's uh, PhD work, we're going to sort of follow up on that. So my student, uh, um, Charlie, compared our farm on the right side with a farm in Malawi, and they have much lower total input of energy, 86,000 uh, megacalories compared to 116,000, uh, but the milk output uh, turns out to be much less efficient in the um, low-tech side. So they're only capturing around 2% of their farm energy in milk, whereas we're at 12 to 15%. Uh, she also worked on uh, Moringa as a feedstuff. I did uh, fermentation of that with uh, Dr. Fellner's lab in animal science and found that Moringa as a 
as a common food that's available in Africa, significantly reduced uh, methane production compared to alfalfa. So you look at 14 compared to 891 uh, nanomoles per milliliter in the um, in vitro efflux from a ruminant animal. And you change the um, change that up. So the outcome methane production is much lo lower if you include uh, moringa into uh, a corn diet. And we've been working on this upcycling in our department for years. When I first joined, we were um, just bringing in the Southeast Dairy Foods Research Center. So uh, milk gets fractionated into cream, leaves you with the skim milk. Skim milk, uh, we separate into uh, basically cheese, which is the casein portion, and then whey. And whey was, a, at that time, a waste product. So Southeast Dairy Foods said, well, what do we do with all this whey that's, that's uh, we either have to dump it in the ground, put it down in sewage uh, treatment. Um, so we did lots of work on individual whey proteins, able to extract uh, alpha-lactobumin, beta-lactoglobulin, get these whey protein concentrates. And now the whey proteins are more valuable than the caseins for making cheese. Um, that leaves us with... Uh, uh, ultrafiltrates of um, of whey. So, so after you take out the proteins, um, you, you're, left, you're still left with a lot of liquid. It contains salts and it contains, contains lactose. And so we've done work with that as a salt replacer and been able to put it into soups. So um, the whole um, process of our early days of the dairy foods research was to make sure that every component of the milk has some uh, food utilization, and we don't, and we have lower waste. We've done something similar with sweet potato. I got into this work uh, based upon uh, publication of a protein from a Japanese sweet potato peel that has a anti-diabetic effect. And uh, my students started looking at uh, North Carolina sweet potato, um, and we find that our peel of a Voragard has basically the same protein pattern as this. Uh, uh, Japanese um, anti-diabetic protein. We developed a method for separating those proteins um, as sort of an upscaling. So a lot of work we've done on sweet potato is looking at glycemic index, uh, various cooking uh, methods, um, and uh, carried that kind of work into a lot of other research. So our department, um, we haven't really looked, changed our mission or vision since we created our 2010 or 12 strategic plan. But I think sustainability kind of fits in here as addressing local, global challenges in food security, food safety, and nutrition through innovative teaching, scientific discovery, and outreach um, to make food that is safe, affordable, healthy, and we should add in, uh, sustainable when we're updating our next strategic plan uh, in response to the new CALS plan that's just coming up. So kind of in summary to where I, where I think sustainability is in the food industry, a lot of work goes into upcycling. We have been doing this for years under different terminology. Uh, we also work on improved processing, uh, probably more emphasis now on the energy efficiency of that process rather uh, in addition to the quality of the product. 
Um, we have to have this trade-off between pathogen destruction and nutrient retention. Uh, we don't work on packaging too much, but we often do a lot of shelf life studies on products that are coming out of our labs. We have, uh, education is a huge component. Uh, we need to start creating new food scientists with a sustainability emphasis uh, to go into these jobs as sustainability officers in major food um, industry. And then we need to uh, continue to continue the effort we're starting, which is a system evaluation to figure out which changes that we do are going to have a greater impact. So I think that's where I will stop and Rebecca will uh, take over and talk about her work a little bit and the needs. Thank you, Dr. Allen. Um, as you guys know, I think this. I don't know if that bothers anyone else, but it bothers me. Um, so I recently went to present a little bit of my work at the National Superdata Collaborators Group meeting, 2013, uh, 2023. Um, and so this is just a quick report on that meeting and a little bit of what I presented. Um, I won't go very deeply into my other part of my research, which is the dairy. Um, system, which is also in there, but it's not, it's not an encompassing. So the National Sweet Potato Collaborators Group's been around since 1939. It has lots of stakeholders um, comprised of industry, academia, and government. Um, there were, at the meeting itself, there were mostly academia and mostly grad students uh, there for the competition. A few uh, are um, Dr. Yencho, which we met at the farm tour recently. Some of us have done that. Um, anyway, there were currently there have five countries that are involved and 21 states, mostly anyone that has any interest in growing sweet potatoes or potential in the future. So it meets annually. Um, I think the last couple of years, I believe it was online, but this year it was in person. Primary meeting goals were to disseminate those uh, research and do it quickly. So if we're not being able to connect with other people about the research that we're having, how are we gonna improve all these goals? So uh, the we were able to evaluate new sweet potato varieties, improve production practices, and um, mainly most of the talks were on weed pests and disease management strategies. So I included a lot of uh, some of those topics because I know we have a lot of interest in that in this room as well. Not quite. So some of my personal meeting notes, there were the state reports. We uh, met with Mississippi, Louisiana, Arkansas, North Carolina, primarily. California did not represent this time, but they are a major sweet potato grower as well. I did not go into the benefits of sweet potatoes because I feel like we should know that in this room. There are some great beta carotene um, components for sweet potatoes and a lot of other really great things for your health and it's a major crop in North Carolina. Uh, there were 40 individual 15 minute presentations kind of back to back, there were about 15 minutes in between. Um, quite a lot of, it was, it was more like a fire hose of information, really incredible meeting. Um, a lot of industry updates, some faculty research and the main component was the master's and PhD uh, research, student research competitions, which Modesto was a part of. And I don't see her here today, but Modesto was 
really, really good. <laughs> she had a really interesting topic. Um, and then, of course, the end of the business meeting and those updates. So because we are in North Carolina, I'll just go into the North Carolina State Report, which um, we planted 81,000 acres this year, um, mostly Covington, Morosky 29, which is a purple sweet potato with a white flesh, and then Beauregard. But um, I didn't put the percentage up here, but Covington's about 90% acreage. Um, so a lot of Covington. Um, major pest problems are Palmeramora, Palmer, uh, Palmer which I believe is also a big problem in corn or uh, soy as well. And then yellow nut sedge. Uh, insects, wireworm, big problem with sweet potatoes. The wireworm will borrow its way into your sweet potato and then at some point leave and then there's just a rotted hole. And it, it's nasty. It's a consumer problem, not consumer perception issue. It's not bad for you per se, but it doesn't look good in our sweet potatoes. It's a quality issue. Uh, disease, glove root, not nematode. And um, I was specifically going to ask Amanda if she knows how to pronounce this other one. Bolotigai <laughs> and Pirolodigai. Thank you. <laughs> I was like, we're going to put the guava root note out there. <laughs> um, so guava root not nematode is a big deal for uh, some states as well. And then some of the major challenges is increased labor costs and increased input costs. And I wanted to note fertilizer, fertilizer was up 400 to 600% in 20, uh, 2020 to 2021. And then it went up another 200 to 300 in 21, 22. So farmers are really struggling with fertilizer inputs. That's, that's a Big input costs. Um, some of the main research um, presentations we heard fall into fall into these categories, which was machine learning. That was very big, especially as it was related to imaging of um, sweet potato leaves. Ornamental sweet potato leaves are a big industry right now, especially in North Carolina. Um, we are just tapping into the fact that sweet potatoes beautiful leaves and they come in many different shapes and sizes. Um, so machine learning has been used for that as well as uh, size sorting. Um, you have three different sizes in sweet potatoes. You have your jumbos, your canners, and then your number ones, I believe is what it's called. And um, your number ones is usually what you're going to have on your, your table. But any, all of them are used for different products and you want to be able to know exactly where they are in your in your lots um, as a farmer. So, uh, and then also we have a big issue with all of those diseases. So being able to provide clean seed is one of the research goals right now. And there were many talks on different ways of doing that. One was uh, getting a big container, one of those refrigerator containers, having a controlled environment, basically a biosecurity gate to walk through. And creating all of these little baby sweet potatoes in that area. Whereas a lot of times you just collect slips from last year and collect all the diseases along the way. Um, and then very interestingly, we talked only like once on gene editing for um, sweet potatoes. And I know that has to do with the sweet potato uh, gene structure itself. But uh, Jen Muir did a short talk on some of the innovations they're trying to do in that area. Um, and then the last topic was sensory evaluation of different sweet potato types. So we have 300 different sweet potato types. What are, what are the tastes, texture, 
attributes that we want in chips, what are the different attributes we want in canned sweet potatoes, and um, so on. So my research, I uh, will not go too deeply into my dairy project, but I will be doing a life cycle assessment of the dairy and the heart system, which is, uh, I like to say, farm to spoon, because it's farm to ice cream. <laughs> so I'll be doing um, more than that, but that's a part of my research. And then this mostly is about the sweet potato project, which is data collection, consumer assessment, and LCA, and then further recommendations. Um, and the reason I'm doing that is because recently the FDA has come out with some precautionary, uh, just, this is the, the rumblings before any law comes into play. Um, they want to reduce uh, childhood exposure to different contaminants in food, especially arsenic, lead, cadmium, mercury, and try to get those as well as possible, but also keep children eating these foods. So don't scare consumers away from eating good foods, but let's reduce heavy metals within those foods. Um, and what is that? What are they in different potatoes or rice or all of these different products that go into baby foods? Um, how can we reduce those, but also keep children eating a wide variety of food? And this is to, they, they're going to do that by releasing guidance to industry, improving their testing methods, and then they set some action levels, and then encourage agricultural and processing best practices. And um, right now, they're in this stage. So they're looking for testing methods, and they're setting action levels for lead, especially. I think mercury comes out next year. So my project is a consumer risk analysis and perceptions of sweet potato products and processes. My main goal is to gather some data uh, on the content of acrylamide, arsenic, lead, cadmium, zinc, copper, et cetera, and raw and processed sweet potatoes. Processed sweet potatoes in food science means a lot of different things. It doesn't just mean, and it can mean chips, it can be canned, it can be fries, lots of different things. And then I'm going to compare the changes due to those processing methods on that uh, heavy metal uptake. Um, and then conduct an LCA of the processes, especially, uh, I'm probably only going to be able to pick out a couple of those processes, the main two or three, um, and then survey consumers, uh, the relative importance of those mitigation strategies. And I would like to include as well, um, if there are possibilities for bioengineering in sweet potatoes, would people be for or against that? This is important because, and I'll say this as a mom, I know that other moms are very, uh, and, uh, many other moms are concerned about heavy metals and presence of GMOs in children's food. You, just, you often see the non-GMO label on children's food. Um, and if that's going to be a major issue, it's not going to perhaps get industry to start adopting these measures. So I want to kind of feel out where the consumers are. Um, so the goal of me going down to this um, conference was to have a survey of surveys. So as a preliminary survey, <laughs> my survey objective was here to survey consumers regarding the relative importance of all of those things that we just talked about, and we'll go over that. And then at this meeting, I was presenting a poster to academia and industry and growers um, to get their perspective on what I should ask consumers. So an inf 
uh, to inform my survey, I was presenting a poster. Some of my example survey topics center around knowledge, trust, and purchase intent. Um, why are they purchasing these sweet potatoes? Is it for personal consumption? Are they doing, uh, are they slicing them up and eating them that way? Are they eating them in as a, an added product and sweet potato products for uh, baby food? Are we concerned about these products? Um, do you know a lot about heavy metals in your uh, sweet potato products? Uh, there's a balance between asking someone something about those and scaring them. So being able to feel out those questions, um, this is a write-up of like two steps away from my, my survey itself, um, just to summarize. And the frequency of purchasing product type perceived um, trust in the industry, farmers, and the government itself, and being able to set safe levels, and then purchase intent um, this is part of my LCA conclusions. Um, how do consumers think about sweet potatoes after knowing something? And then sources of information. Um, I think this is becoming a more prevalent topic. Where are people getting their information? Is it social media? Is it blogs? Is it a government website? It, where are people learning about sweet potatoes? Um, and that was my brief survey. Quick references, mostly from the FDA and my collaborator group. And thank you very much. That's great. Thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of information that we have to discuss. So, um, you know, who wants to jump in? I'm going to say no. Yes. So, um, I have two questions for you, Rebecca. One of them is about, I know that you are going to do the life cycle analysis, but um, where do you think those metals are coming in from? I feel like my first guess would be that they're either in the field process, but you're yes. looking at things that are well beyond that. So where do they kind of get introduced? And then um, my second question was about why do you think there was so much fertilizer increase in um more recent years. Yeah, that was the, the cost of fertilizer, if I didn't say that. Oh. The cost of fertilizer has gone up. So oh, that was so probably like just a supply chain. Why can Yeah, sorry about that. Is that okay. like no, your um, acres? Uh -huh. So, and Dr. Allen can speak to this, you probably know it better. Um, from what I gathered, they overshot the last two years. And so we're now down to kind of where we need to be as far as acres goes. Um, and then for your first question, uh, uptake of heavy metals is really big in, sweet, in potatoes and root vegetables. So um, that's probably where the main, um, where most of the heavy metals are coming from. But I would like to also know if anything is getting converted or um, is it reduced or is it increased in the processing methods as well? Okay. Yeah. So kind of both. Yeah. Yes. I have a follow-up question. When, uh, so is there any type of soil testing that's required on farms for these uh, root vegetables? Or, yeah, this is like I don't know. It's a good, yeah. One. Well, it's this is a preliminary. Uh, so this is the industry knows the FDA is making these limits. Yeah. So we want to be able to get ahead of the game, be proactive on that. Um, I'm sure there's soil testing. Do you know anything further to um, that? Not really, because the industry is just trying to figure out this problem. 
And so um, the second follow-up meeting to the one we were at here was the National Sweep Data Convention. So the national, there's a national organization that's been trying to sample um, across the country and figure out, is there is there an issue? Um, the heavy metal it, um, labeling stuff is basically baby foods as a whole. And so the big problems are things like arsenic and rice. Um, so the sweet potato industry may come out very good saying, oh, our, our ingredients are much slower in heavy metals than some of the other things that are predominant in sweet potatoes. I mean, in, in big. But it's like one of those things like you, know, you could get fresh sweet potatoes, either in a layer, in a layer on that, and you can't really. But yeah. it's kind of soiled, and I'm looking at a jar of sweet potato versus like. You don't even know how much they've been washed and mm -hmm. what kind of water they were washed. Um, yeah. The follow-up question or kind of comment was not just the GMO label, you were talking about labels, consumer reactions to those labels, but particularly the baby food. I mean, I've recently come out of the phase of buying baby food, <laughs> um, and the vast majority of it really, like, or more and more of it, that it's organic labels. Yeah. And yeah. that is has to be non-GMO according to the organic regulations. So that's just something to yeah. bear in mind. I haven't thought about how that regulated. Yeah, uh, I did. I asked a couple of people at the, at the convention about the how many acres are really grown for organic. It's only about 3,000 acres, which what I thought is, was very interesting. Yeah, um, there's eighty, there's eighty-one thousand acres being grown, grown right this year, and then there's only about three thousand, and that's mostly Gerber. Yeah, you're in the store, baby food section, sweet potato. Yeah, good, a good majority of it. It looks like it's a consumer. Most of it is Gerber. organic. Yeah, usually. yeah, which kind of makes sense. If you want to get organic food for your baby. And the the question is, can we change maybe uptake? Uh, and that this is like if there is a possibility to mitigate some of these issues down the road for bioengineering, um, or are consumers going to totally reject it? Or are they not? The other issue that really came up, and this is this was really helpful to my research, is our main um, consumer base is actually in Europe. So, what are we going to do about that? So, one of the suggestions was to actually put the survey in Europe. Uh, one of the guys was like, yeah, here, you just go over there to some supermarkets and ask people. I'm like, are you going to make it? Sure. <laughs> Any questions? Um, can you talk a little bit about your life cycle analysis, both around dairy and also around sweet potato? I know there are lots of debates about, you know, what is a good life cycle analysis. And I, I wonder if you could talk about what are some of the the, the strategic questions that you face in terms of drawing the boundaries around your life cycle assessments or dealing with controversy or critique or things like that as you approach these? Yeah, I've definitely really been struggling with that. Uh, it's probably the main question I ask Dr. Allen all the time. Where's my boundaries? Where should I put my boundaries? Um, for sweet potatoes, I'm considering putting the boundaries. Um, I think it's called, I, I can't remember the term. It's I want to know the process type and how that's impacted. So I'm not as concerned with the farming practices at the moment. So for the sweet potato life cycle assessment, I want to have from the input of sweet potato to the process, not to the consumer, just to the process. 
for the dairy one, I'm considering doing the full circle, um, which would be a lot more intense. Um, but the reason I would like to do that is I think it would be a better a better help to North Carolina State University and, and it would be a more well-rounded project because then there would be uh, this cradle-to-cradle approach with that education. So, so the main, I mean, just to make sure I understand, the main question is, is that boundary, it's almost like a temporal boundary, like when when do you start counting inputs and outputs and when do you stop? Yeah. So as long as you set those clearly, nobody can mess with you? No, <laughs> absolutely not. Um, I think it's you have to be very clear in your discussion section that this only applies to this area. Um, and as we were talking about earlier, um, if you don't consider water for the farming practice, maybe you might be completely off track. Um, so you can always make an argument that, well, in this situation, it doesn't apply. That, that answers. Yes. I, I guess I want to go back to John's slides on what you did in your department just now in terms of hiring. And when you showed us all those slides about what you're not doing, in terms of sustainability. And I guess it's also a thing of definition of where is food science? It's such a, it seems like such an interdisciplinary kind of thing and it has to have economics connected to it and so on. It seems like you have a great hire in the sense of broadening that definition. But I just was wondering about that. All of those things that you said, not just NC State, but the world is not really doing. Are the really important things in your estimation? Yeah. So, <laughs> and we're talking about food systems. So, who is doing that? Or, I mean, you're just talking about the food scientists. Anyway, I, it just struck me that we could be piddling over here with all these things, and then these you mentioned war and all these other things. Um, who looks at that? Yeah. So, I so I think um, uh, the the chain group from American Nutrition. American Society for Nutrition um, will, you know, if, if they eventually um, incorporate everything they want to incorporate, then those meetings and, and outcomes of uh, symposia and stuff like that, that group like that, is able to pull more people from a multidisciplinary background together. Um, that's going to help, certainly help to answer that question because nobody can do it on their own and, and no, no individual department is going to. Have the broad enough focus. We, um, we keep saying we want more interdisciplinary work, and we uh, we hire all these uh, teams for things that are multidisciplinary. But then we have all these uh, funding issues that we only fund departments. And <laughs> you know, so related to that, I was wondering if one department is getting involved in the Global One Health Academy. Um. Uh, I think we've we've had a lot of those um, interactions. Uh, Dr. Gondario has worked uh, a lot with uh, food safety issues in the vet school, um, but she just retired. So we'll see what our next microbiologist wants to do. Uh, you know, there's always a always a turnover and a, and a change in, in focus. Thanks. Well, I was just going to go back to the LCA um, discussion. So in the sweet potato system, you're looking primarily at heavy metals and tracking that through the, the LCA. So I'm wondering, and it's really interesting to me that FDA would be doing something like that when they don't know what the primary sources are 
and how to test them and what the leverage points would be for industry. So I guess um, my my question is, is in setting your boundaries for the LCA, it might be important to know where the leverage points are okay. and to make sure you capture those, you know? Um, so even though you might want to bound it only at a certain stage, I think what's most useful to the decision makers might be to, you know, try to find the leverage points and make sure you're capturing that in your boundary. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I just found that interesting that they're already at the decision-making point without knowing what the primary sources or leverage points are. You know? Yeah, so that's they're doing of, quite a lot of research on, on all of this right now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So by leverage point, you mean where you do something that makes a difference? Yeah, or? where you could intervene, like a, either a policy or a technical leverage point. Yeah. We call them leverage, you know, leverage points, policy levers. Yeah. And it's kind of one of those things is um, if sweet potatoes naturally have more than that set limit, what do you do? Yeah, I mean, is it is it the fertilizer? Is it pesticides? Is it the soil? Is it the microbes in the soil? You know, what what is it? Yeah. yeah. And I think part of the problem is their scope is so wide. They're doing it for all of the different food types. They're not just doing it for sweet potatoes. Yeah. Um, that you're, you're going to run into a lot of issues for those yeah. leverage So your LCA could really be useful to them if you took it upstream even to find some of those leverage points. That's a good point, yeah. I was curious about the, the gene editing of sweet potatoes. But yeah, what, that question. What kids are they most interested in? I did not think she was as far along as she wanted to be. That was probably my summary of that and i'm trying to find where that slide is but um and that's kind of why i left the name up there so that you could go follow up with jean here she's from israel um i know there's some issues with gene editing and sweet potatoes so she's trying to tackle those um i didn't get a good answer about how she's going to do it are her goals pest resistance or Nutrition increases. Don't know. It was asking that question. Actually, yeah. you know, they have technology to do some gene editing in plants, and I'm not sure they've even done it in sweet potato yet. Yeah. But they want to know what the questions are and where they should start their focus. And actually, if somebody would give them some money to get something better. <laughs> yeah. So this was more like a pitch. Um, yeah, which kind of sits you at a point where we don't, we still aren't doing a lot in gene editing for <clears throat> sweet potatoes. Is there something special? I'm sorry, I just wanted to channel Heika um, because <laughs> if she were here, she might bring up the. So when she learned about um, some issues with um, cocoa plants uh, taking up cadmium in brew. Um, she immediately thought of the possibility of using gene editing to change the plant so it wouldn't pick up the heavy metal. And, you know, I mean, it seems like if this is going to be a major concern for the industry, that would be a, a, a huge target would be could you change the way that sweet potatoes take up heavy metals? And then it wouldn't matter yeah. what's happening in the soil. I mean, that would be, I don't know, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it, um, sweet potatoes are hexaploids. Yeah, yeah, they're messed up. Yeah, they're messed up. So that's why I was really interested in this gene editing talk, but it um it wasn't as fruitful as I thought. I mean, and to that point, like that you're gonna do some surveys and things. I mean, I always thought it would be interesting in terms of like a labeling people knew, like it's not just 
GE, but GE to reduce whatever. Yeah. How More knowledge. About that. Mm -hmm. But I actually had another question, totally not related. Is so the something I noticed between both of your um, talks was like there's a lot in some of the abstracts that you post up there. There's a lot of um, evaluation of like current systems of what's going on, which to me seems like you guys would be pretty well positioned to make some arguments around like what should or should not be done. So I'm just wondering like, um, you know, maybe in your dissertation or in, like where you guys kind of put yourselves in terms of normative things, uh, but the arguments around that should or should not be doing this and how you guys think about it. In, in any specific context? Uh, sure. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, it could be a question for you individually, but maybe like this sort of wider field of, you know, food bioprocessing and you know, you're sort of studying something. Um, and whether you see that as divorced from like saying what we should do or, or not, could be for you or for the field of art. Yeah, it's hard to know how uh, faculty decide what to work on, I think, and you know, where, where to direct research. And um, I mean, for many people, it's basically looking at a call for proposals so that so the people with the money are asking the questions and getting the researchers to answer the, the answer to those questions. And so um, if you have something you know, that's really not fundable, um, you need to kind of keep that on your back burner and keep that working along while you're uh, doing stuff that's for other people that, that they're uh, willing to take part in. Okay, I think we are at one o'clock, um, but everyone is welcome to stay for lunch. They did show up, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've got a film in house. Um, I have some burgers, bagel sandwiches, and other things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We have a for about 25 people, and we're less than that. So, yeah. We can continue the conversation. Yeah.